Hey everybody, good evening. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. Uh, we're doing something a little different tonight. My guest, uh, Rachel F. Pittman, who was supposed to be on tonight, is, is unwell. So uh, she's asked to reschedule that, so I agreed. So that left me without a guest. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read. You know, we've been reading her book, The Haunting of Lizzie Borden. Uh, every weekend, every Sunday for an hour. And uh, I thought, well, since it was her night to be on anyway, we're going to go ahead and read the next bit of that. We're on our nut, day uh, 13 of, of reading the book. And I'm going to give everybody five minutes. Like we always have the five-minute intro. I didn't run the intro today because obviously it's kind of like our Sunday after our Sunday evening read. Um, so just sit tight. Let me finish my little intro thing, and we'll give people time to get in here. Uh, like I said, we're going to be reading. I'm, I'm going to be. We're going to be reading. I'm going to be reading. You guys can sit down and ha do whatever you do uh, during my shows, during, during the normal shows, and uh, just kind of enjoy the ride today because it's going to be kind of different. Tomorrow now, ahead of time, I'm going to let you know. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about secret space projects, uh, Project Camelot with Carrie Cassidy. So she's going to be here. So we got a great show lined up for tomorrow. Anyway, again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. If you have a paranormal problem you need help with, get a hold of us uh, either via email, uh, californiahaunts.org, californiahauntsradio.com, and uh, we'll come out and help you. We'll see what we can do for you. Anyway, again, tonight's kind of different. My guest is not feeling well. So I uh, decided to read my book because, you know, booking last minute is kind of hard, especially now because a lot of people are on vacation. And so, you know, they're just not around. Uh, what we've doing every Sunday is I've been reading the uh, Haunting of Lizzie Borden. There's another part to it. That's the book. By Rebecca F. Pittman, who was supposed to be our guest tonight. And uh, last on last Sunday, or this last Sunday, two days ago, Lizzie had been arrested for the murder. I say murder, not murders. Because initially, she was only arrested for one murder. So now she's in jail. Awaiting trial. She's done the prelim she's awaiting her preliminary trial, I think. I could be wrong. But yeah. They've done all the pre stuff before the trial, you know. And so now she's now she's awaiting trial. So that's what we're gonna pick up from. And uh, there's witnesses and all that good stuff and a lot of the you know, what what I'm re if what I'm reading's right, unfortunately, the police seem to have bungled the job. You know, it, it's circumstantial evidence. Because, the, because there were a lot of mistakes made. A lot of people in and out of the crime scene, things like that. And um, so I can kind of see how she got away with it in the end, you know. But uh, when you read into this, uh, Rebecca has done her, her um, research where she's gone through all the court records, all the testimony, and put this thing together. Yes, I do have a copy of Paranormal Books, Tyler. I have a lot of paranormal books, Tyler. A lot. They're stacked up all against my walls and cupboards, you name it. But uh, she, uh, you know, it was it was just bungled. Like if if you were, if you were here when we first started reading the book, and then after the fact after the murders had happened, whether it was Lizzie or not, you'll you get the feeling that it, it was all bungled. Unfortunately, very poorly handled. So uh, this is where we're at. She's been arrested. She's the only one out of everybody that was in the house that day, which was Brid uh, Bridget, the maid, was there, you know, and then her uncle was in and out that day. But she's the only one that they've taken into custody so far. And that's that's, that's where we're at right now with, with her in jail. They just moved her, I think, to the county jail from her hometown. And so she's awaiting trial. If anybody has any questions, uh, this is a good time to ask them. I'll be on about an hour reading. Um, normally we do this on Sunday, but uh, the circumstances, you know, it was too short a time to get a guest in here. Um, I decided to go ahead and read today. So welcome, Tyler. Good to see you. And if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button because every follower helps. And if you're watching from Twitch, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, please look down in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen there and you will see a 
little ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes head on, and that is the California Haunts mascot. And he, if you click on him, that will give you access. Well, you get access anyway, but that will give you extra access to more than 300 videos that we've done, interviews, and they're all different topics. I'm a journalist, photojournalist by trade, so I kind of like to mix it up. So that'll give you access to all those interviews. Plus, you can go back on these chapters in, in this book, okay, and check it out. Um, so that's a good way. And it will alert you when we have a new show coming up, all right? So please do. Please subscribe. Please follow. I just said, the more you follow, the better. If you like what you hear during this show, just two or three people. Give your friend a call and say, hey, there's this really cool thing going on. She's reading the book. Things like that, okay? Share it with people because we want to get the word out on this show. And we're, word of mouth is spreading, and, and, and we're getting more and more people following us, especially on our RSS feed, which is going out to Apple and all those other places, you know? You know, we're not only here, we're on Apple Music, or we're, we're over at iHeartRadio, you know, we're at Spread, you know, all those other places. Yes, we'll talk about that off screen, Tyler, Okay. All right, so I'm going to open my tablet up here so we can get the show on the road. And like I said, I'll be reading about an hour to you guys. I have an old tablet. It's one thing I laugh about. If anyone, if anyone, if anyone has a nice tablet they, that they want to get rid of or they have a new one that they want to get rid of, let me know. I've got a Samsung Galaxy Note 8 that's older than football. It does the job, though, you know. It's just I'm out of memory and it can't do anything. It's so old I can't even update the stupid thing. So, <laughs> okay. It's hot today. It was around 103 this afternoon. I was watching Stranger Things this afternoon. Stranger Things is pretty good, boy, I'll tell you. I'm getting into it more. Never was a big fan of it, but I'm getting into it more. So here we go. People that watch me Sunday know the routine. I'll just sit here and read. Love reading. Love reading these books. And Rebecca Pittman self-publishes, so we have full permission to use the book, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Give me a second. Like I said, it's an old, it's an old antiquated tablet. Okay. We left off. Uh, see, I can show you guys right there. If I share the screen a little bit here. Yeah, I'll share. I'll share. I'm good. See, there we go. I don't know if the camera can pick it up. No? Okay. That's what I'm reading. It's really bright, actually. No, no, no. Don't turn it off. Don't panic. Okay. The, okay. Topic is Emma Waits. As Lizzie waited out the 10 days before the preliminary hearing began, Sequestered away from the burdens of the press and the handling of the Borden home, Emma Borden was not fortunate. Lizzie spent her days reading and visiting Mrs. Wright. Even oh, and visiting Mrs. Wright even brought in a rocking chair, stool, and feather pillow for Lizzie's comfort. Fresh flowers and a bowl of fruit decorated her room. Emma's days were quite different. The crowds, although diminished, still milled about the house. The police guard had been removed. Once Lizzie was jailed. John Morris was still in residence, unable to leave town due to his bond. The two of them had hired two servants. Emma often cooked for Lizzie and spent long hours with her sister in Taunton. 92 Second Street was an area of attraction. Small boys dared each other to touch the siding or into the yard. Now that the police guard was gone, the curious came closer, peering in the windows and searching for clues in the backyard, usually under the cover of darkness. Emma's nerves were forever on edge, worrying someone would break into the house. Hang on a second. Okay. Her fears were confirmed on September 20th, 1892, when she was forced to call the police station. Officer Chase filed the following report. I, this day, visited the Borden house under instructions from the city marshal. I saw Miss Emma Borden, and she went down cellar with me and showed me a window in the northeast corner room, nearest to the barn, and next north of the cellar door, which she wanted to have fastened up and wanted me to note the condition that it was in before anything was done. I found one light of glass broke in the upper sash, the lower sash bad, the appearance being pushed in and raised up about five inches. 
what comfort John Moore supposed to have, we don't know. A home that once contained the father, stepmother, sister, and Bridget was now down to herself, her uncle John, parentheses, a reluctant house guest, and two strangers she had hired to help at the house. The memories of her former life were in each piece of furniture and small item of decor. One item of furniture refused to relinquish its memory of that tragic day. The calendar dial stopped on the day of the murders, something the omnipresent newspapers of 1892. A singular coincidence in the connection with the board murders is that the calendar painted on the old-fashioned clock at the residence on 2nd Street stopped on the 4th, the date of the murders, and still points to that date. The other works of the clock are not impaired, but tick off the minutes and hours with, uh, with usual re regularity. Chapter 29, the preliminary hearing. Let me check one thing here because I was moving some videos around, so give me a second. I want to make sure they downloaded right. Make sure I got it. Yes, okay. So I can make some space on my hard drive for this video, so let me take care of this. There we go. Ooh, make sure I got the right one before I get all excited. Yeah. Okay. There we go. The only thing with this computer is not my regular computer, so this computer has issues with memory, so I have to make sure that I free up enough memory for it to record these shows. Okay. The, chapter 29, the preliminary hearing. In the days leading up to, to the preliminary hearing, the newspapers filled their pages with whatever fodder they could find. Fall River was forced to content itself with the recapping of the board murders, theories, police running down leads, and a few scant offerings of Lizzie's days in the Tauntaun Jail. The public, both on and below the hill, were running out of breakfast conversation. Anticipation was building as each day brought them closer to the sensationalism that would, temporarily, lift them from their boring routines. Interestingly, the psychics and clairvoyants took advantage of the lull to spring forth in full force. Attorney Knowlton, the marshal, and Attorney Jennings were besieged with letters from those gifted with special powers. These purveyors of the, of the, of the either world, using Ouija boards, cards, telepathy, claimed they had received messages from the departed wardens, particularly Andrew. Clues as to where the bloody hatchet could be found and who the murderer was were sent in many requesting a monetary reward should their revelations bear fruit. Meanwhile, in the real world, an important hearing in the Borden case was about to take place. In Massachusetts, a preliminary trial or hearing was held in a district or lower court of the state. Its purpose was to determine if there was probable cause for charging the defendant with a crime which is beyond the jurisdiction of the district court. Today, it is called a probable cause hearing. Serious crimes had to be heard by the superior court and murder was a serious crime. Therefore, Judge Blaisdell, through a preliminary hearing, had to determine whether there was sufficient evidence to judge Lizzie Borden probably guilty of the murder of her father, Andrew J. Borden. A preliminary hearing also allows the defendant the opportunity to hear the evidence against them. This is called discovery. Unlike a grand jury examination, the defendant has the right to be present at a preliminary hearing and her counsel is allowed to cross-examine the prosecution's witnesses. The New York Times on August 15, 1892, gave the public a taste of what was to come. City Marshal Hilliard said today, this case will depend on circumstantial evidence wholly, and the people's interest cannot be served by throwing the evidence into the hands of defense until a hearing of the trial takes place. The attorney and myself are satisfied that the public authority has not been imprisoned in haste nor without a full understanding of what her arrest meant. The marshal's statement has given rise to much speculation as to the character of the evidence that the prosecution submits at trial. The preliminary trial is not, is not now regarded as of special importance in fixing responsibility for the crime except that it gives the defense an opportunity to measure the strength of the government's case. It is needed it is an even chance that the verdict will be probably guilty. If the verdict should be probably not guilty, the government could still insist on placing the case before the grand jury and demand an indictment over a discharge ordered by the lower court. A great deal 
article is being published in connection with the case about the Borden family honor. On this point, the most important member of the Borden family said for publication this morning, the other town is not to be affected by a police suspicion, perhaps resting justly on Miss Lizzie Borden. No true Borden has ever placed a stumbling block in the way of the law, and no member of my family will in any way hamper the police in their investigation. End quote. And with that, the prestigious Borden clan shut their door firmly in Lizzie's face. The sentiment portrayed by the word suspicion perhaps rest, resting justly on this Lizzie Borden. And no true Borden has ever placed a stumbling block in the way of the law. Was apparently designed to put distance between the true Bordens and the woman who had tarnished the Fall River founding father's name. Andrew Jennings felt the weight of the burden placed upon his shoulders by Andrew. Mr. Borden had been Jennings' client for a good many years. He was privy to Andrew Borden's personal as well as commercial concerns whenever legalities were involved. That he would be defending his friend's daughter from the charge that she had brutally murdered him with a hatchet was a very surreal event. His heart went out to Emma Borden, particularly. She suffered greatly beneath the strain. Mr. Jennings, feeling perhaps his legal expertise was not, not quite up to a murder trial, called in Melvin O. Adams as co-counsel. Colonel Adams was from Boston and a former district attorney of Suffolk County, Massachusetts. Adams was a no-nonsense attorney who was not inclined to suffer fools gladly. He instigated more than one sparring contest as the hearing progressed. Lizzie's back in town. As if Ringling Brothers had rung the bell, the crowds headed for court, court Square on August 22nd. Lizzie arrived from Taunton on the 11 o'clock train to her hometown amid the same family as she left. The papers were uncharacteristically quiet regarding her year after Loveland died. With her usual ironclad will to do as she pleased, she flaunted her independence, even when a slow sensitivity toward her father's death would have served her better in the public's opinion, and perhaps the judges. Once again, Lizzie was taken to the matron's room at the central police station. She was put in charge of Matron Reagan. The jail lacks suitable amenities for Lizzie. The continual hum of voices floated to Lizzie as 300 people made their way into the courtroom. Unlike the inquest, the hearing was open to the public and the crush of people trying to obtain a seat that day was aching to a riot. Many were well-dressed women carrying picnic baskets and knitting bags. That a woman was on trial for a heinous murder did not dim the carnival atmosphere filling the room, along with the flurry of skirts. Makeshift tables had been brought in for the nearly 50 reporters who were forced to share chairs in the small room. Loved hands fluttered fans continually as the 80-degree heat, aided by a healthy dose of humidity, caused the courtroom to feel like a day on the African belt. At 2 o'clock, Judge Blaisdell arrived and took a seat. He did not look pleased to see the picnic baskets in general air for Twenty minutes went by. The heated crowd from seats. The door opened, and three hundred faces turned to see Lizzie Borden enter the room. None too happy. Colonel Melton's three attorneys returned to the courtroom, and Mr. Knowlton addressed Judge Blasdale. If it pleases your honor, Mr. Knowlton said, feeling the three hundred sets of eyes staring into his back, there are some things used as evidence in this case which are wanting at the present time. Consequently, we have agreed with the defendant's counsel to adjourn this hearing until Thursday if it meets your honor's approval. The crowded courtroom lit out, lit, out, lit out a collective groan. They had been here since 12 o'clock, and it was now three. They would have to do it all over again in three days and hope to get a good seat. Judge Blaisdell agreed to Mr. Knowlton's request, and the room emptied. Lizzie asked if she could remain at the central police station in the matron's room rather than return to Taunton. The marshal, tired of ducking crowds, agreed. Emma brought her sister some bedding, and a home-cooked meal. Lizzie spent the next two days reclining on the lounge, writing letters and reading. Reverend Jubb was a daily visitor, along with her older sister, 
and a few loyal friends. Emma, you have given me away. On August 24th, the day before the hearing began, a dramatic scene unfurled in the matron's room between Lizzie and her sister Emma. Matron Reagan, accustomed to seeing the two sisters interact in a calm and supportive attitude, was shocked at the exchange that occurred shortly after Emma entered the small room. You've given me away, Emma, Lizzie exploded, either unaware or unconcerned that Matron Reagan was only four feet away cleaning the small toilet area. No, Lizzie, I haven't, Emma said, wordly. She had feared this exact reaction from her sister. Trying to mollify Lizzie, she said, I only told Mr. Jennings what he needed to know for your defense. That is false, and I know it, Lizzie shouted. But remember, I won't give him one inch. Never. Lizzie reportedly held up her small finger, indicating an inch mark on it, as the emphasis of her final words. With that, she lay on the lounge and turned her back to, to the room, facing the wall. Emma slumped into a chair and sat, head bowed. Matron Reagan stated that the silence lasted an hour and a half until Mr. Jennings arrived to confer with Lizzie. According to the Fall River Herald, Mr. Jennings talked with Emma, and later he called on Lizzie in order to clear up certain matters on which he has not been able to secure satisfactory information. What could Emma have told Mr. Jennings that would incite Lizzie's outburst? Emma had been away during the murders and had little evidentiary information to offer. In the author's opinion, there are two things Emma might know about the location of the bed for cord dress, and the information about the dress pattern Mr. Knowlton asked about during the inquest. The showdown begins. On August 25, 1892, the hearing finally begins. Twenty-three witnesses were called to testify over a six-day period in what was to be a dress rehearsal for the Superior Court trial that would follow. If Lizzie was found, probably guilty. Edwin Porter our ever-vigilant reporter for the Fall River Globe got the story from Matron Russell concerning the argument between Lizzie and Emma and ran with it. It made headlines the next day, exactly when the preliminary hearing was to kick off. Mr. Jennings and the sisters were mortified. The remarks of giving me away and I won't give in sounded like the words of a guilty person. Mrs. Brigham, Reverend Judd, Mrs. Holmes, and others came after Matron Reagan. She had unwittingly released a milestorm of controversy. Her only recourse under the onslaught was to deny she reported any such conversation between the sisters. The papers circled her wagons with taunts of, of course she is going to deny it, and other slaps against the retraction. Mr. Jennings was frantic. He had a paper drawn up for her to sign, stating the whole thing was a lie, and she never witnessed any such exchange between the sisters. He asked the good reverend to hand it to her. When she looked it over, she panicked. She had not lied about what she saw, but she had never imagined it would be in the papers. Porter was always hanging around. He was the police reporter. She may have forgotten for an instant that what went into his ear came out of his pen and onto the world forum that was a newspaper. Mrs. Reagan looked at the official-looking form Jennings had drawn up and balked. She took it downstairs to the marshal and asked him what to do. Should she sign it? Marshal Hilliard read it over and blew up. Upset at the mess she had gotten herself into, he ordered Matron Reagan not to sign it, and to only testify about her story on the stand. He also told her to mind her business and send her back upstairs to handle her famous ward. Mr. Jennings, incensed that Hilliard had blocked his efforts to do damage control, snatched up the paper from Marshall's desk and, waving it dramatically in the air, declared before a dozen reporters and a crush of spectators that he and his defendant were being unfairly treated. Mrs. Reagan did tell her story under oath during the Superior Court trial ten months later. She testified she told the truth. The conversation between Lizzie and Emma had occurred. And thus, the lead-up to the much-anticipated hearing took center court. The drama the crowds had hoped for already in full sway. In an effort to break the tension inside the walls of the small matrix quarters at the Fall River Police Department, Matron Reagan playfully asked a small group of friends in Lizzie's waiting area if they could meet her challenge that they could not break an egg with their hands. It was the last afternoon before the hearing and nerves were taut. Mrs. Holmes, Mrs. Brigham, Lizzie, and Emma were present. Lizzie, after hearing Mrs. Reagan's challenge, spoke up. Well, I can break an egg, she said confidently. 
Not the way I would tell you to break it, Mrs. Reagan said, smiling, and better a dollar. Lizzie, in a matter of which her father would have approved, bartered her down to a quarter. Mrs. Brigham went for the egg. Upon her return, she placed it into Lizzie's eagerly outstretched hands. Mrs. Reagan told Lizzie how to hold it. Put it between your two clasped hands and crush it, the matron teased. Lizzie, in true board and stubbornness, pressed at the egg over and over. Mrs. Reagan warned Emma, who was seated closest to her sister, to move aside in case the egg broke and ruined her dress. She needed them worried the egg would not break. Lizzie reluctantly handed the egg back to the beaming matron. With words ripe with meaning, she said, There, that is the first thing that I undertook to do and never could. Edwin Porter interrupted them, asking Mrs. Reagan to step out in the corridor. Upon returning to the room, Mrs. Brigham testified, Mrs. Reagan said, That reporter has come after me again, and I told him that I had nothing to tell him. The following morning, as the preliminary hearing began, the Boston Globe trumpeted the story of a sister's quarrel, citing Edwin Porter as its source, and, and Porter citing Matron Reagan as his. Please take the stand. Beginning August 25, 1892, witnesses were called to bear their testimony concerning the murder of Andrew J. Borden. While evidence concerning Abby's murder was also introduced, and in particular the amount of time that had transpired between her death and her husband's, her name did not appear on the arrest for murder, should Lizzie be found probably guilty. Lizzie, at this time, was only being held for the possible murder of Andrew Jackson Borden, her father. It was one of many oddities concerning the early days of the case. Much of the pertinent testimony of the witnesses has already been presented throughout this book as it applied to the various chapters. There were, however, some truly poignant moments in the preliminary hearing that bear noting. Dr. Dolan, the medical examiner, was second to take the stand that Thursday morning. He followed civil engineer Thomas Kierman. The engineer merely testified to the drawings and measurements he made of the house and property for the benefit of the trial. Dr. William A. Dolan answered Attorney Knowlton's questions with succinct information concerning what he saw on the day of the murders. The audience was spared nothing when it came to the details of the blood and gore. From blood splatter to brain-rending to, to brain slashes, measurements of wounds to stained furniture and wallpaper, it was all laid out in minute detail. The papers reported that the sisters held up remarkably well, considering the brutal details of their parents' death were on display for all to see. Then came the most traumatic moment of the hearing, during the cross-examination by Attorney Adams, Lizzie's cold counsel. Mr. Adams, have those bodies been interred? Referring to Abby and Andrew Borden's bodies after the full autopsy was performed a week after the murders. Dolan, yes, sir. Adams, when? Dolan, I do not know just what date it was. I think it was a week last Tuesday. Adams, did you remove anything from those bodies or either of them? Adams, yes, sir. I removed the skulls, the heads. A gasp from the shocked spectators erupted. All heads turned toward Lizzie and Emma, who were seated next to each other. Emma immediately placed a gloved hand over her face as her head dropped to her chest. Lizzie turned a startled face to her sister before hiding her own behind her black fan. Reverend Buck, notably hard of hearing, did not miss the doctor's statement. He, the Holmeses, and the Brighams turned incredulous faces toward the two sisters, who sat in stunned silence. Tears flowed behind Emma's gloved hands. Lizzie finally looked up trying valiantly to regain her composure. Attorney Adams tried to regain the court's attention. Adams, when? Parentheses, as to the removal of the heads. Dolan, the day of the autopsy. Adams, for what purpose? Dolan, because I was instructed to do so by the Attorney General. Adams, what did you do with them? Dolan, I cleaned them. Adams, do you mean to say these bodies are buried without their heads? Dolan, yes, sir. His voice dropped. The courtroom spectators gasped again. Adams, has it been said to any member of the family or any friend that these people were buried without their heads? Dolan, I do not know. Adams, have you said it or caused it to be said? Dolan, no, sir. Adams, did you photograph them or cause them to be photographed? Dolan, yes, sir, by James A. Walsh, a photographer from the city. Dr. Dolan was then asked if he was present when the safe was opened. He replied that he was. Mr. Adams made a point of stating no will was found, a point that weighed in Lizzie's favor. If Andrew had not gotten around to making a will, there was no fear of him disinheriting his daughters in favor of Abby. 
Mr. Adams addressed the taboo subject of the bloody towels found in the pail in the cellar. Dr. Dolan said he saw them, looked at them casually, and asked Officer Molly to take them. He said they were left downstairs in the marshal's office and nothing further done with them. He said he did examine them there and was satisfied they had no connection to the case. Dr. Dolan did fudge about the use of the hatchet during the autopsy at Oak Grove Cemetery. Mr. Adams asked him if they, if, if they, parentheses, axes and hatchets, at any time were used by you or any person in your presence with reference to the wound. Dr. Dolan answered, no, sir. Mr. Adams tried again. They never have been tried or attempted to be fitted to those wounds? No, sir, Dr. Dolan answered. It was reported that he and Assistant Marshal Fleet took the clawhead hatchet to the cemetery to the cemetery receiving vault and laid it up against the wounds to see if it would fit in the incisions. Where Dr. Dolan dodged the question is when Adams asked if he had attempted to fit the hatchet to the wounds during the autopsy. In truth, Dr. Dolan did not try the hatchet during the autopsy. He and Officer Fleet, along with Dr. Leary, tried the hatchet against the wound Sunday, August 7th, four days before the autopsy. Mr. Adams may have read about it in the Fall River Herald, which ran the story but gotten the day wrong as to when the hatchet fitting took place. Dr. Dolan did lie when he answered, no sir, to the question if the hatchet had, ever, had never been tried or attempted to fit the wounds. His one-two punch came when he decided the murder of Andrew might not be splattered with blood as it shot towards his feet and the end of the couch. Dr. Dolan stated the murderer stood between the open dining room doorway and the sitting room at the head of the couch. He said that due to the leverage action of the long-handled instrument, it would not take extraordinary strength to crush in a skull with a hatchet. He also said the murderer's hands would not necessarily be covered in blood. A point was made that, oh, that the only blood on the clothes Lizzie wore that day and handed over to the police showed only a pinhead-sized drop on the petticoat on the outside of the skirt, not the inside where you would expect to find a menstrual spot. The autopsy reports of both Andrew and Abby were read in mind, numbing brutality as to each wound, its measurements, and the probability of causing death on its own. The newspapers following Dr. Dolan's time on the stand reflected the barometer of the public's feelings. They were outraged that the sisters had not been asked or told that their parents' bodies were beheaded and buried in that manner. It was called barbarous. At that moment, the tide turned in favor of Lizzie Borton, more than it had at any other time. The only damning evidence against her was the timeline of the murders, that Abby died so much earlier than Andrew. Most people could not wrap their minds around an intruder hanging around for an hour and a half to take a shot at a man who wasn't expected home until 11 o'clock. Dr. Dolan was asked to identify the ring of keys and the two spare keys found in Andrew's pocket. He was then asked to leave them with the court for future use. An inconsequential question as to Andrew's partially used package of fine-cut chewing tobacco found in the dead man's pocket was asked merely if Dr. Dolan knew Mr. Borden chewed tobacco. He answered he did not know. Was it to hint that perhaps it belonged to another male, possibly the real killer? With that, Dolan stepped down. The Star Cast of Witnesses there were the auxiliary witnesses that caused little stir in the minds of the sensation-seeking crowds that filled the courtroom each day. The bank clerks who saw Andrew Borden the day of the murders, Joseph Shortsleeves and James Mather, the two carpenters working on Mr. Borden's store where he picked up a lock that day, Charles C. Cook, his property manager, neighbors flanking the Borden property, a few doctors, an endless parade of police officers. The spectators fanned themselves, stole a nibble from their picnic baskets, yawned, laughed, and watched Lizzie Borden's profile at the back of her head, depending upon where they were seated. The women, who made up 80% of the gallery, shifted beneath the confinement of their corsets in the, in the wilting heat. Bridget Sullivan. Those who watched Bridget Sullivan on the witness stand were favorably impressed with the Irish domestics and faltering cadence. She answered each question given to her with as much detail as, she, as was asked of her, never contradicting any information she had given over and over again to the police newspaper interviews, or during her inquest testimony. She went over the days leading to the day of the murder, remembering meals she prepared, who arrived, who departed, and what was worn and what time they ate. The coroner learned all the intimate details of the Borden family's daily routine, including slot pails, menstrual cycles, and 101 ways with mutton 
As Bridget recited the numerous times Mutton appeared on the bulletin table, she and Lizzie exchanged looks and a small smile. Attorney Adams for the defense did his best to shake Bridget's memory of the murder day. Her recollection of what happened that morning differed widely from Lizzie's in several ways. One, did Bridget have male callers who may have sat with her on the side steps or in the backyard? Parentheses, the purpose was to show it may have been one of Bridget's bows that Lizzie saw when she said she saw a man running along around the house. It was damage control for the new awkward stranger in the night scenario she had been trying to sell. In parentheses. Two, when Lizzie ate with her parents at the table and when she didn't. Bridget and Lizzie's stories of when Lizzie was at the table were different, especially Wednesday lunch when Lizzie said she was too sick to be at the table. But Bridget said she not only ate with the family, she was there early. Parentheses. In order to show Lizzie was not up and around, let alone may have just come in from a visit to a drugstore for poison. In the parentheses. Three. Mr. Adams tried to push the poison pear theory. He asked Bridget if she was sure pears weren't eaten during the time leading to the murders. She shut them down repeatedly. Four. Bridget's most formidable volley with the acerbic attorney came when he tried tenaciously to get her to say she had seen Lizzie in the kitchen the morning of the murders reading just as Lizzie claimed she was while waiting for the irons to get hot. Adams, did you see her reading during any time that forenoon? Parentheses in the kitchen. Bridget, no, sir. Adams, was there, was, was not there some old Harper's magazines with pictures in? Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, you had seen her there looking at them or reading them? Bridget, sometimes I would. Adams, you have seen her sitting down in the kitchen doing that? Bridget, not very often. Adams, she came into the kitchen and sat down there. Bridget, not very often. Adams, she had done that before and you have seen her sit down and read there. And look at those magazines. Bridget, once in a while. Adams, do you remember was it that morning she sat down in the chair there and read? Bridget, I did not see her. Mr. Adams had made his match with Bridget. The fiery Irish temper, while in control, flashed often as he tried to throw throw her in his efforts to support Lizzie's timeline of that morning. Adams, do you not think you went to the barn and got a pail, then came back to the house and met Miss Lizzie at the screen door? This is Lizzie's parentheses. This is Lizzie's version. Version. Bridget. No, sir. Adams. You do not think you said so yesterday? Bridget, no, sir. Adams, if you did say so yesterday, you were mistaken. Bridget, I did not say This is called rotate the questions out of Adams. When Mrs. Boyd had a coal fire that morning, Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, those stairs are carpeted and have been for years. Parentheses, the stairs leading from the kitchen to Abby's room. Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, do you know what dress Mrs. Borden had on that morning? And on and on and on, he, he tried. Only once did Mr. Adams score a major point. He asked Bridget if anyone had approached her yesterday after her testifying on the stand to talk to her about her testimony. She said she had been down in the marshal's office area waiting for the carriage that would take her home. Mr. Adams went on the attack, his voice raised and confrontational. Adams, did anybody have any talk with you, did it? Did he, the district attorney, talk to you last night? Bridget. Yes, sir. He said a few words to me down in the marshal's office. Adams. Was the marshal there? Bridget. He was around there. I do not know whether he was listening to me. Adams. Did they have any testimony or anything? Adams, what is? Adams, did you look at it? Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, was it in writing? Bridget, in printing, I think. And parentheses says, probably stenographer's transcript. Adams, was it something that you had said somewhere? Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, it was. And, and had you made some mistake? Bridget, no, sir. Adams, you did you not? Bridget, no, 
Bridget, did you say it? Did you say it yesterday or at the other time when you were in, this, in parentheses? Bridget, I do not know. Adams, has you said it at all at any time? Bridget, yes, sir. Adams, how much do you think he, he read to you? Quite a little? Bridget, about half a dozen words. Adams, what were those half a dozen words? Bridget, I don't know. Adams, was it about the note, the laugh upstairs, the groan, her saying words slowly? To each of those questions, Bridget answered, no, sir. He could not get her to budge. During Bridget's missing inquest testimony and the nine missing pages of the preliminary hearing, we know through leaks that she said Lizzie came down the back stairs just after Andrew came home that morning at 10.40 to 10.45. The door between the boy's bedroom and Lizzie's was always locked on both sides. Bridget was surprised to see Lizzie coming down that way as the girls were forced to use the front stairs due to the locked bedroom door. Bridget testified she heard Lizzie laughing at the top of the front stairs when Andrew came home that day. Mr. Knowlton asked her during the preliminary hearing, How soon did you see her? Parentheses, after hearing Lizzie's laugh. Bridget, it might be five or ten minutes after. She came downstairs. She came through the front hall. I don't know whether she came from upstairs. She came through the sitting room. I was in the sitting room. Knowlton, where was Mr. Borden? Bridget, in the dining room. He sat at the head of the lounge in a chair when I saw him. Bridget made a slip in the previous testimony. Attorney Knowlton is trying to prove Bridget saw Lizzie come from the front stairs where Bridget heard her laugh. This puts her near Abby's body, but Bridget, knowing she saw Lizzie come down the back stairs as she went into the kitchen to get more cleaning water, has a hard time telling a straight out lie, especially one that could get the girl hanged. So Bridget throws in, I don't know whether she came from upstairs. She came through the sitting room, works for either staircase. If Lizzie came down the back way, she entered the sitting room from the kitchen and probably placed the key to Andrew's bedroom door back on the fireplace mantel so he wouldn't find it missing. He has come home and speculated early. She does not want him to know she has unhooked the doors upstairs as she went about killing Abby. If Lizzie came down the front stairs, she would enter the sitting room from the front entry. It is there, Bridget Hedges and it may be those half a dozen words, I don't know whether she came from upstairs, that Knowlton showed to her on a piece of paper in the marshal's office. He was not happy with the disclaimer she threw in. To underscore that Lizzie came down the front stairs, Knowlton hits it again with a few statements later in the hearing. Knowlton, did you see her when you let Mr. Borden in, or only hear her? Bridget, no, sir, heard her. Knowlton, when she came down, what room did she come into from the front hall? Bridget, in the sitting room where I was. Then she went into the dining room. She had just answered which room Lizzie came into a few statements earlier, but Knowlton is intent on getting his front hall theory in. When Bridget is asked, is asked about the paper Knowlton showed to her, she says, I said I saw it. She also says, he read a little of it to me. Perhaps Bridget cannot read. It would not be unusual for a poor immigrant who may not have had much schooling. Many foreigners who came to America went into domestic service, which did not require the ability to read and write or take clerical positions. As stated earlier, Mr. Knowlton was careful to keep Bridget away from her bedroom window in her testimony. His leading question, did you look out the window when you were upstairs? You did not, did you? May have caused a few people to wonder. Mr. Adams merely, merely asked Bridget if her room overlooks the backyard. Bridget's testimony did not help Lizzie, nor did it harm her, except to confirm her version of the morning's happenings. Remember, Bridget testified first at the inquest, and it was supposed to be a secret session. She was not in the room when Lizzie testified, and vice versa. The only knowledge she would receive on Lizzie's story would come from Mr. Knowlton. Lizzie never took the stand again. John V. Morse John's testimony may have been aptly labeled the awful dodger. He is adept at couching his own answers in a way that just manages to slide under the radar, while others are outright lies. We do get a better sense of him in the preliminary hearing as to his attachments to Fall River. It is easy to forget, due to his 20 years away from Iowa, that he is a native of Fall River in Swansea, and he has many, many relatives in the area. John states he moved back to Fall River from Hastings, Iowa in 1890. This may be a significant date. 
It was in 1890 that Lizzie was away on the grand tour for almost five months. Plenty of time for Andrew and John to begin piercing together their family enterprise. He lived in Warren, Rhode Island for one year when he first moved back and was living in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts for the year leading up to the murders. At the time of the hearing, he is still living under house arrest at the Bordens. As Knowlton hammers away at John's whereabouts on Wednesday he arrived from South Dartmouth, Dartmouth one day before the murders, it is interesting to note John's, John's answers. Knowlton, on the occasion of this tragedy, when did you come to the house? I'm assuming that you did come. Morse, before this, on the 3rd. Knowlton, what time on the 3rd? Morris, I left New Bedford on the 12.35 train. John Morris used the, used the same statement over and over in his other testimonies. I left New Bedford on the 12.35 train. One sentence. No embellishment. What does that leave? What, what that does is leave it to open. And leave it open. Even though Knowlton is asking about Wednesday the 3rd, John's answer is vague. At other times, Wednesday is not specifically mentioned. Just what time did you arrive in Fall River? Leaving New Bedford on the 1235 train is probably a true statement. The question is, which day did he leave? He may have been in the area longer than he wanted to admit. The rest of John's testimony pertaining to him has been provided in earlier sections of the book. He is articulate, quick on his feet, and at times confrontational. The only time in his preliminary hearing that he loses control is when he is closely questioned about his knowledge pertaining to Andrew's intentions for a will or, or bequests. Suddenly he is all over the place and obviously avoiding the question. The other landmine placed before him was by Mr. Jennings when he tried to pin him down as to what time he actually arrived back at the Bordens for a noon meal on the day of the murders. When John stated he saw no crowds, nothing that drew my attention. It was obviously a lie. His relationship with Lizzie was finally brought out. While he and Emma had close ties, he finally admitted, I did not think I ever had a letter from Lizzie in my life. This is odd, as John is Lizzie's uncle on her mother's side. A mother she lost early in life. Yet, it is obvious that John has been involved in every major real estate deal in which Andrew has undertaken, including the purchase of the house on 4th Street for Abby's half-sister. It seems, when John comes to town, things get very heated at the Borden homestead. Alice Russell Attorney Knowlton had a rough time as he trudged his way through Alice Russell's preliminary hearing testimony. The witnesses had changed since their inquest testimonies. They were led to believe the inquest was just a casual gathering of information to aid the police in their search for the murderer. By the time the preliminary hearing rolled around, two weeks later, they realized their 15 minutes of fame has just been extended and thrown into the national limelight. This is serious now. None showed their unhappiness in being in that spotlight more than Ellis Russell and Emma. Oh, I'm sorry. More than, more than Ellis Russell, Emma and Lizzie's close friend for over 11 years. Perhaps it was Alice's witnessing of the burning of the dress, her later knowledge of Lizzie's nocturnal trip to the cellar without her, her private insight into Lizzie's tantrums and lies that followed the murders as Alice camped out of the house for four days. It was evident Alice Russell did not want to impart any more information than was absolutely necessary during her testimony. Attorney Knowlton. Was Mrs. Churchill there when you got there? The day of the murders. Alice. I cannot remember whether she was or not. Knowlton. Did you say anything to Lizzie or she to you? Alice. I, don't, I do not remember. Knowlton. Do you remember anything you did? Did you go in to see either of the bodies? Alice. No, sir. Knowlton. Do you remember how Lizzie was dressed? Alice. No, sir. Knowlton. Do you remember anything that took place at all? Alice. I remember nothing very connectedly. During Mr. Jennings' cross-examination, Alice's answers had a little more meat to them, but they were still mostly broth. Each question was met with meager detail. Most astonishing is she remembers nothing about the dress Lizzie wore, even though she spent 45 minutes with her, fanning her, rubbing her hands, and even trying to loosen her blouse before she changed into the pink wrapper. For Mr. Knowlton, Alice was as hard to crack as Andrew Borden's safe. Adelaide Churchill Where Alice Russell's testimony had been vague and at times non-existent, Adelaide Churchill was, the articulate, was articulate and filled with detail. Her relevant information 
had been offered elsewhere in the book. Two of the more damaging aspects she proffered as to Lizzie's guilt was her testimony concerning Lizzie asking people twice to go upstairs and look for Mrs. Borden, and that Bridget called her into the kitchen to tell her about Abby's sick friend. Knowlton, do you remember anything more being said about that note? Then what do you have to testify to? Then what you have testified to? Churchill, yes, sir. Bridget told me that Mrs. Borden had a note to go see someone that was sick, and that she was dusting the sitting room and hurried off. She said she did not tell me where she was going. She usually does. Mr. Jennings, during his cross-examination of Mrs. Churchill, tried to hone in on the note. Jennings, now you say Bridget told you something about this note. When was that? Churchill, well, we were in the kitchen. She called me into the kitchen. Jennings, called you in the kitchen? Churchill, yes, sir. Jennings, who was there at that time? Churchill, Lizzie. Jennings, anybody else? Churchill, I don't think so. Jennings, won't you tell us again just what Bridget said to you? Do you recollect how it happened that you said anything to her? State that. Churchill, I did not. Jennings, she told you voluntarily without anything being said to her? Churchill, yes, sir. Jennings, now tell us again, as near as you can recollect, just what Bridget said. Churchill, she said Mrs. Borden had a note to go and see someone that was sick. She was dusting the sitting room, and she hurried off. She said she did not tell me where she was going. She usually doesn't. Jennings, now, as to the statement which you say Bridget made to you with regard to the note, whether she did whether she did or did not state whether Mrs. Borden or Mrs. Liz, Miss Lizzie or Mrs. Borden told her that? Churchill, she did not say who told her. She said to me, Mrs. Borden had a note to go see someone that was sick. She was dusting the sitting room. As she hurried off, she did not tell me where she was going. She usually does. During Bridget's preliminary hearing testimony, she was asked about the note. I think I might have misread this, guys. I'm going to keep going. Adams, Mrs. Borden had told you she had a note for somebody and was going on a sick call and went away without telling you where she went. Bridget, no, sir. Mrs. Borden did not say anything to me about a note. Adams, whether you said to Mrs. Churchill that, do you remember talking to her about it? Bridget, I might tell her what Miss Lizzie told me. Adams, who's angry at this point, never mind about the might. I want to call to your mind, if I can, whether in the talk you had with Mrs. Churchill, you said to her that Mrs. Borden was away, that she told you that she had got a note and had gone off on a sick call, and she went away without telling you anything about it. Bridget, I don't know if I told her that. Adams, you do not remember saying anything of the sort. Bridget, no, sir. Adelaide Churchill had lived next to the Borden home all her life. Yet, after the day of the murder, she returned only for the funeral service. She admitted to not returning to the house after she left to fix the new meal for her family that fateful Thursday. She did not come over the next day to offer assistance. Did Mrs. Churchill already feel Lizzie was more involved than she had led those around her to believe? Or did she really see something that day, as was rumored, something that she would never tell, even if they tear, even if they tear my tongue out? Ellie Bez. The young drug clerk's Eli, Ellie, I think it's Eli, Eli Benz, the young drug clerk's testimony that Lizzie Borden came into Dr. Smith's drugstore on Wednesday, August 3rd, one day before the murders, asking for prussic acid, was allowed during the preliminary hearing. His testimony and his other two clerks were there that day, had been reported earlier in the book. They were not allowed to speak during the Superior Court hearing before a jury of 12 men. The reason given was twofold. It was too far removed from the day of the murder, parentheses, it was the day before, and the murders were committed only with, were committed with a hatchet, not poison, so it was not relevant. If the three men had been allowed to testify, it may have made the difference in Lizzie's verdict. Dr. C. Burry Bowen. Dr. Bowen's testimony was rather dull and uneventful. At times, he was vague, and on a few occasions, got the arrival time of certain people wrong. He was clearly biased as to Lizzie's innocence. It was also evident he took some of his memory of events and fashions from his wife while articulating the information as if it were his own. He deftly sidestepped his embarrassment concerning the finding of Mrs. Borden's, of Mrs. Borden's body and telling the first policeman on the scene that he thought she had fainted 
or died from the shock of finding Mr. Borden murdered. It was only after Officer Doberly informed the doctor that her head had been caved in that Borden realized she had been attacked as well. Professor Edward S. Wood There was a palpable anticipation as Professor Wood of Boston took the stand. This was the man who had studied all the hard evidence and would now state his finding. If ever Lizzie Borden's head heart raced, it was now, as she waited to hear the results of her parents' possible poisoning and any evidence found on the hatchets and axes. Mr. Knowlton for the prosecution. Did you receive a package containing two stomachs at any time? Wood. On the 5th of August, I received a box by express and opened it and found that it contained four jars. One jar was labeled milk of August 3rd and another jar labeled milk of August 4th. The third jar was labeled stomach of Andrew J. Borton and the fourth jar labeled stomach of Mrs. Andrew J. Borton. All of these jars were properly tied and sealed with seals and broken. Knowlton, have you preserved the seals? Would I have. Parentheses, these seals are now on display at the Fall River Historical Society in Fall River, Massachusetts. Knowlton, what did you do with the stomachs, Professor? Wood, the stomachs were both unopened. I opened them, carefully examined the stomachs, and carefully examined the contents which they contained. I found that both stomachs were perfectly normal in appearance. They were in the condition of perfect health. There was no evidence of the action of any irritant or anything of that kind. I tested Mr. Borden's stomach also for prussic acid with a negative result. There was no evidence of any irritant poison having been in the stomachs at all. No irritation. There was no other ordinary poison which would prove fatal immediately. That was the only one I considered it necessary to test for under the circumstances. Knowlton, have you analyzed the milk? Wood, I have not. I have not opened the jars. I have not had time to. Parentheses. This was a major victory for Lizzie. No precious gas had found in the stomachs. There are two salient points here, however. Wood did not test for arsenic. Lizzie was unable to purchase the prussic acid, but Andrew and Abby's sudden vomiting and other symptoms pointed to, pointed to a possible poisoning by arsenic. If no irritation was found in the stomachs, this is not unusual. The stomachs were removed a full two days after the sickness began. They had thrown out most of the contaminated food and liquid. Experts state that the signs of arsenic may begin to diminish as quickly as four hours after consumption, especially if it has been expirated. Lizzie must have felt a rush of relief as Professor at Professor Wood's testimony. The poison theory was the only one that might have sunk her case, as the police had no other evidence against her at this point, only a druggist's story. The hatchets and axes were next, but one has to wonder if she was concerned about them at all. The hatchet used to kill Abby was still lying on the roof of Crow's barn, and the police had skipped over the hatchet she broke in the cellar. It was not among the four presented at the hearing. Wood. On the 10th of August, I received a trunk from Dr. Dolan. It contained a hatchet, two axes, a blue dress skirt, a blue dress waist, a white skirt, a starch skirt, a lounge cover, and a large envelope, which contained three small envelopes, those envelopes being marked, one of them, hair taken from A.J. Borden, the second one, hair taken from Mrs. A.J. Borden, and the third one, hair taken from the hatchet. On the 16th of August, I received from Marshall Hilliard, personally, in Boston, a paper box containing a pair of shoes or ties, and a pair of black stockings. In order, Professor, Professor Wood rattled off the words that the court had been waiting for to hear. Lizzie listened tensely. Hatchet. No blood, no trace of blood. Both axes. No blood. Blue dress, skirt, and blouse. No blood. White skirt, petticoat, one very small spot which looked like blood on the outside of the skirt in the front, six inches from the bottom, one sixteenth of an inch in diameter. That was blood. Hairs from Andrew and Abby compared to hair found on the hatchet. It was not a match to either person. It was, in fact, not a human hair, but bovine, belonging to an animal, probably a cow. Lizzie sat back on her seat. Her mask was in place, but the news had to have made her heart leap. That was it. Nothing. Not one damning piece of evidence, with one exception. Professor Wood gave Abby's time of death, based on her stomach contents and the rate of digestion, as one and a half to two hours before her husband's demise. Professor Wood's theory as to where the assailant stood when, he fir when the first blow was given was somewhere in the dining room. They stood the di somewhere in the dining room. They stood in the dining room doorway. 
The reaction to Professor Wood's testimony concerning the blood evidence and stomach findings was far-reaching. The Fall River Herald, August 30th, 1892. The announcement of Professor Wood sent a tremor throughout the courtroom. The dignified precincts of the court would permit no outbreak of emotion, such as characterized this same announcement as it appeared a few moments later on the bulletin boards of, of all the newspapers in Boston, where the crowd paused to read and shared the words which they firmly believed established beyond a doubt that an innocent woman had been unjustly accused. Newspapermen, within hearing of the professor's words, dropped their pencils for an instant and lost unimportant words. words. They did not, however, lose two very significant sentences which followed. There are no bloodstains on the dresser's shoes. The hair is not, is not a human hair. The rain had dampened most of the early days of the preliminary hearing. It did nothing to squelch the enthusiasm of the crowds who fought daily for entrance into the courtroom. Most of these spectators were the ever-present women at Fall River, showing up in their best hats and dresses as if attending a lawn party, the Fall River Herald quipped. It is curiosity or sympathy that attracts so many women to the district courtroom. Some women are are blessed in not having any household chores <laughs> cares to bother them. Assistant Marshal Fleet. On day four of the preliminary hearing, Officer Fleet took the stand and went over the events of the day of the murders and after. As he was testifying, something happened inside the courtroom to bring the wheels of justice to a temporary halt. The Fall River Herald, at this point, some confusion was the Fall River Herald, at this point, some confusion was created by the fainting of Mrs. Bowen, wife of the physician. Mrs. Bowen had been a regular visitor of the courtroom during the hearing and is credited with being firm, being a firm believer in the innocence of Lizzie Borden. The heat in the room, combined with the nervous strain of the chair, caused her momentarily weakness Monday afternoon. She was carried into an adjoining room and the hearing proceeded. The scene at this time was very dramatic. Every eye was directed toward the assistant marshal and each person was bending eagerly forward to catch every word of the slowly uttering sentences. Utter sentences. Lizzie herself bit her lips constantly, and her sister's hands were nervously moving up and down a fan, which lay in her lap. At this time, the gas was lighted, and this, and this brightly affected the situation. Officer Fleet, at the time, was describing the finding of the hatchets and axes in the cellar. That Lizzie was showing her nervousness at this time by biting her lip is not surprising. When the handless hatchet is not introduced, she may have felt once again that providence had smiled upon her. Lizzie wasn't the only one celebrating, although she was noticeably happier, as the defense's turn at the, witness stand, at the witnesses took center stage. The Fall River Herald announced the close of the fifth day of the trial of Lizzie Andrew Borden found the prisoner's friends triumphant. All morning they sat in the courtroom and heard blow after blow delivered to the government's theory, shattering it piece for piece until only a ragged framework remained. The testimony for the defense has been given were applicable throughout the book. There were no big headline-grabbing revelations. Mr. Jennings believed the prosecution had not proved his case, and his time spent wrapping up a few loose ends was brief. The New York Times, Fall River, Massachusetts, August 31, 1892. The preliminary trial of the Great Borden case is practically at an end. There yet remains the arguments of the attorneys and tomorrow morning, District Attorney Knowlton will sum up the evidence advanced by the prosecution and will endeavor to show that the evidence is of a nature that will warrant the return of Lizzie Borden to the Bristol County Jail. There to remain at least until November, when the grand jury will be opened. The argument for the defense will be advanced by Colonel Melvin O. Adams of Boston. It took just four hours for the defense to put, put, put in their case today. Nobody pretended that the testimony presented was of such a nature that the attorneys for the prisoner would care to go before the jury upon it as their complete answer to all the allegations of the defense. What they did endeavor to show was that it was possible for some unknown man to have committed this murder, that the actions of Lizzie Borden after his, her discovery of the body of her father was natural, and that there were no bloodstains visible upon her garments. This endeavored to make clear the fact that the failure of the government to find the weapon was virtually ample proof that she did not leave her yard upon the morning of the murder, and that search after search of the premises failed to reveal any weapon of a suspicious nature, with the exception of the hatchets and axes. Quote, what has become of that weapon Lizzie Borden is guilty? 
said Mr. Adams in a private conversation. Did it vanish into midair? No. The natural presumption must be that the murderer carried the instrument away with him. Okay, guys, that's it. I'm going to end right now. Continue Sunday. And um, I want to thank you all for joining me today. And I really appreciate it. <clears throat> Sorry for the last minute change, but it happens, as they say. Tomorrow. I agree, the whole trial was a mess. Yeah. I see your comments. You know, I think the whole trial was a mess. The whole investigation was a mess. Done. Okay, uh, tomorrow we're going to get back into it. Uh, Carrie Cassidy is going to be with us talking about the Secret Space Program and Project Camelot. So that's going to be really interesting. The last time she was on, it was interesting. And I think we're going to have a great night tomorrow. I want to thank you guys for coming today. And uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies for equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Again, if you're watching from Facebook or you're watching from Twitch or Twitter, or no, Twitter, if you're watching from Facebook or Twitch, or even Twitter, we'll go for that, or uh, you're watching from uh, <clears throat> TikTok, please please hit that like button and, and please hit that join button. I could use all, all, all the people I can. You know, uh, YouTube shows us no love, and uh, the way to show love is to like and share and do all that good stuff, and, and you know, and follow and, and follow us, follow us on all those things. And if you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, which is that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner, with the uh, magnifying glass to Sherlock Holmes hat. Also, I want to point out that you can visit us at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or CaliforniaHauntsOrg. Another thing is that you see that ticker at the bottom, and that's because uh, California Haunts does not take money or anything for investigating. We do take donations. And that's because I own it, I run it, everything comes out of my pocket. Even for the radio show, everything you see here comes out of my pocket. So if you could find it in your heart to help me out, that would be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts. Or if you go to Venmo and you feel better about Venmo, just type in California Haunts. Anyway... Oh, okay. Anyway, I will be back Sunday with part 14 of this. Uh, the closing argument. It's going to have the closing arguments for the Lizzie Borden case. So uh, be sure to do that. That'll be at six. That'll be probably at 6:30 p.m. Sunday. Uh, it's usually, it's usually either 6 or 6:30 p.m. So keep an eye out for that. And I really, like I said, I really appreciate everybody coming tonight. And uh, tomorrow again, 6:30 p.m. Pacific. Carrie Cassidy is going to be with us. All right, everybody, have a good night. See you tomorrow.